finish healing people, feeding people. And like what happened in Matthew chapter 12, again, some smart one come up and they say, well, show us another sign. You seem like a good musician. You entertain people. And so show us another sign, then we'll attribute to you that, yes, you're a great teacher. And Jesus refuses to give that sign. But then, he's curious. So he asked his disciples, he said, what do people say as to who the Son of Man is? And the obvious answer for that should have been that someone should have said, Jesus, you. But they say that, well, something that Moses was the Son of Man, something Elijah was, or some say some other prophet. So they actually didn't get Jesus' question. That's why he had to turn around. And he had to ask them a second time. Now, who do you think that I am? Again, the right answer should have been, you are the son of man, because that's where Jesus was trying to connect. But in a sense, Jesus is surprised by Peter's answer. Representing the group, he says, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. In fact, Jesus takes it back. He said, Peter, I didn't expect you to figure that out. It has to be that God has revealed that to you. Because there's no way you could have figured that out. He makes this confession. And then Jesus makes this statement. He says, blessed are you. He says, upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. And since then, the churches, the congregation, the denomination, the Roman Catholic Church has been fighting over on what was Jesus going to build his church. And it wasn't until the Renaissance time when the Roman Catholic Church monopolized on Peter, declared him as their first pope, and started the apostolic succession, and he says, okay, now we start the popeship. But if you look at the text, first of all, the word church should not have been translated there, because that's not the Greek word from where we get the word church. Here the right word should have been assembly, ecclesia, the group of people those who are like-minded, those who God called to be his people. That's the word that's used over here. So when Jesus says that upon this rock I'll build my church, it couldn't be Peter. Because church is not built on Peter. In fact, the same Peter, few chapters down the line, he's going to deny Jesus. He's going to confess that I know nothing about this Jesus. I swear, I never met this man. I have nothing to do with him. Also, to build the, the church on the confession, again, it's a living body of Christ. It's a functioning human body, the comparison that's made. It's the comparison made to the bride of Christ. So it is not some kind of an abstract statement that you put it on the building and that becomes a church. No, again, the collective, the right translation should be that I am going to have assembly of people who are going to confess Jesus as their Lord and Savior, and that is going to be called eventually a church. So if you have a church building, but there are no believers, it is not a church. If you have a bunch of people who have some idea about who Jesus is, but they really don't accept him as the Lord and Savior, that's not a church. Because even in the book of Revelation, when the celebration is going to happen, that the bride of Christ is presented to Jesus Christ, it is the believers, those who accepted the Lord as their Lord and Savior and continued the confession. But the church has struggled with it. The world has struggled with it. And they are trying to put this together from a different point of view. 
there are three things that are important in this passage. First, who Jesus is. That question he asked even till today. Number of years ago, almost 30 years ago, I started a kind of a survey in India. And the reason for that was because at that time we were told that India is an unreached people group where people have never, ever heard about Jesus Christ. I wanted to test that hypothesis. So wherever I travel, that time till today, any stranger that I meet, I ask them two questions. And if they are further interested, then I ask them the third question. The first question I ask them is, have you ever heard about Jesus Christ? Just the name, just anything. 99% of the people in India, they say yes. My second question to them is, who do you think this Jesus Christ is? Again, 99% of the say that he is the God of the Christians, or he's the one who started Christianity, or he's the one who died for Christianity, all kinds of other things. So my conclusion from the survey is that yes, people have heard about Jesus Christ, but they have not understood about him. So the world, the greater majority is not a world that do not know who Jesus is, but they do not know about what is being offered in the Jesus Christ, about the good news, about the salvation, about him as a Lord and Savior. The second thing is, in India, everyone believes in God. In fact, they believe in 3,000 gods. Wherever we go, there are temples, 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 temples. So when we try to talk about Jesus Christ, try to present to him, they very readily accept him. In fact, they oftentimes even quote him, even before I presented the gospel. Yes, anytime I'm sick, I pray to Jesus because he heals. Anytime we don't have enough in life, we pray to Jesus and he provides. I remember when Akanksha, younger one, she was very small. Oftentimes she used to get so hungry when we sat on the dining table that she will not even wait for us to say the prayer. She doesn't want to start eating right away. I used to say, I don't know, just wait. Let, let's thank the Lord. Let's pray. She said, why? I said, because everything comes from him. She said, let me finish eating first. We can thank him later on. <clears throat> I said, yeah, we could. So one day, I sat with her with biblical passage. I opened the passage that how Jesus prayed before serving the meal and everything, feeding the 10,000. <clears> I felt very good. She understood. Evening time came. So I... Um, asked her, I said, so what did we learn today about praying before meal? She says, yes, we pray before meal if we don't have enough food. So that's what Jesus was doing with two loaves and <laughs> loaves and fish. There was not enough food for all the people and that's what he was praying. If there was sufficient food, he wouldn't have prayed. <laughs> so I said, okay, we'll have another go at it. But that's what was the message also presented by the missionaries all around the world. We have made it sound as Jesus is only for the poor, only for the destitute, only those who are sick. Otherwise, you don't need him. Countries around the world which are prosperous, when you take to Japan, when you take the Middle East, they have proved that blessing is not the prerogative of the Christians. See, we can be blessed without believing in Jesus. If your Jesus is only to rescue us from our misery, we don't need him because we are being fine. So you can't take the gospel of these countries with the charity message or the message of healing and message of this thing. And that's one of the major problems in India. 
country as a whole is not poor, but the church in India is poor. People give. If you go to the Sikh temples, if you go to the Hindu temples, go to the mosques, they're loaded with money. It's only when it comes to churches that the church is almost bankrupt. Why? Because it's primarily made up of poor people. It's primarily made up. We have not taught them how to give. But what has happened is that over the years, many came to claim that Jesus was not the Messiah, but he was the savior of his time, just like Moses was at one time. So, Muhammad starts Islam, Guru Nanak starts Sikhism, Joseph Smith starts Mormons, and many others who have come, trying to dispute this passage that he's not the Messiah, he's not the Christ. But where they failed is, that all of them have elaborate tombs that people go and worship, the cemeteries they go to. A monument to the point that they came, they lived, and they died. The only difference is, as Peter confessed, you are the son of the living God, so you're going to be a living God. And that's what Jesus proved. He said, I came to this world to die for your sins. I'm going to die, and one day I'm going to rise again. And he did. But another thing that has happened over the years, <clears throat> as we look back at the scripture, I got a little late, so I'm going to take a few more minutes to finish it up, even though my time is ending soon. Right from the beginning when God created his prime creation, Adam and Eve, he gave them a set of instructions what to do. And soon we find they failed. And since then, a number of instructions came and people kept getting diverted from them, and failed. But when it comes to Moses, he rescues people. Moses says, uh, God says to Moses, especially when Joshua is sent to fight the Malachites in the battle, and Moses sitting up on the top of the mountain with his hands raised, Joshua is fighting. God says to Moses, write this down. And I want you to tell this to Joshua, who won the battle. And that was the beginning of the written scripture that God gives to Moses. He says, write everything down. He dictates to him that Moses experiences and everything. In Exodus chapter 32, we have a famous story of Moses going up to the Mount Sinai. God calls him up and he says, I'm going to give you the basic instructions, my Ten Commandments. While Moses is up there, something happens down with Aaron and with the congregation. The people who had experienced God's wonders, Aaron who has been the spokesperson for God, and was with Moses, and saw all the wonderful things happen. The people say to him, we don't know what has become of this man Moses. We need to move on, make us a God who will be our savior and lead us there. Aaron says to them, okay, take out all your jewelry. He takes the jewelry, melts it, takes his toolkit, and makes a beautiful calf, and he says, here's your God. And tomorrow we are going to have an offering to this God and we are going to have a big celebration. While Moses is up with God, God says to Moses, you better go down and see what has happened because I have had it enough. I'm going to wipe away the people again. He said that a few times before. In fact, he was done with Adam and Eve right there in the garden. He was done with the world with Noah. He was done many times before that. He had told Joseph that you go to Egypt, he sent Jacob over there, he gives very specific instructions. I'm taking you away from Canaan because it's not ready as a promised land. 
you're going to be in Egypt for a while and I'll bring you back. They became so comfortable that they did not want to come back. Their time over there should have been 30, 40 years. But they end up spending 400 years. God has been constantly trying to work with his people. So he says to Moses, you better go down and see what's happening. Moses comes down and he's shocked to see this temple, this, this big calf and the worshipping and everything. In fact, he drops the Ten Commandments that he has brought from the Lord. And he says to Aaron, what in the world are you doing? And Aaron's only defense in chapter 34 is, Moses, you know these people, how prone they are to do evil. They made me do it. In fact, they gave me the jewelry, I threw it in the fire, the way it sounds like over there, as if he was upset that they were giving him jewelry to make an idol. He said, I threw it in the fire. And boof, this idol came out from nowhere. He forgot to tell them that he carved it. Good that God gave him the opportunity. He said, if you repent and come towards God, say, you'll be saved. And he says there, many have decided not to repent, and they perished and they died. God has been trying to put his spoken word into written word, which even was not enough, so he brought it to a living word in Jesus Christ. And there are 25 plus parallels where you see that the word, same words are used for written word and for living word, whether it's light, it's bread, it's life, it's living. If you study, it's a wonderful thing. In fact, John says it was from the beginning was the word, and it's the word that became flesh and dwelt among us. In other words, God said, my this word is same as the living word that I sent to you, because this itself is a living word. He worked so hard to give us the written scriptures, then he puts his signature at the bottom and he says, heaven and earth will pass away, but this word is not going anywhere. Well, starting way back in Genesis, Satan has been trying to attack God's word. He started distorting right there. The first spoken words of Satan recorded in the Bible are the words when Satan says, now has God really said this? Putting doubt in the minds, let's, let's, let's look at what he said. That's how he starts off. Ever since he has been trying to destroy God's word. For centuries, people have attacked this Bible. I have so much of literature written by other religions trying to attack this Bible. Somehow to discredit the facts of this book. And guess what? They couldn't. Till today the book has stood. So now it's under a different attack. Since we can't attack the facts of the Bible, let's attack its interpretation. That's also started way back with Satan. You know, the Hebrew Bible was written just using about 2,000 words. And the reason I know that, because when we did our translation in the Hindi Bible, it took 22 years from original biblical languages into Hindi. We had access to 126 different Bibles to make sure that we get the precise and the correct meaning of each word before we came up with the Hindi Bible. Very primitive language in those days. <clears throat> Only 2,000 words. <clears throat> Comparison to that, Webster English Dictionary has 470,000 entries in the dictionary. Okay, almost half a million English words. And guess what? With 500,000 words, we have trouble defining who a woman is. 
But in the Hebrew Bible, in the first three chapters, God uses five different words to describe man, male, female, husband, and wife. There is no confusion. <clears throat> confusion is not with the Bible. And confusion is also not with many other translations of the world. Confusion is with the English language because we want it like that. It's like the lawyer who comes to Jesus. He says, what must I do to inherit God's kingdom? Jesus says, you know what's written there. He quotes it back. Then go and love your neighbor. He says, okay, so who is my neighbor? Let's define that. If after Jesus' answer gave the good Samaritan story, then he could have said, now what really is love? That's what we have started doing. We are attacking the Bible from its interpretation point of view. That's what the new attack is. That's why there's never ever been more need to make a commitment to the word of God to have the teachers and the preachers who will help us to make sure that we know the truth. Otherwise, Jesus himself predicted that many are going to come after me, claiming to be me, and many are going to come after giving you all kinds of fancy interpretations. But another danger that is there <clears throat> that the churches, the assemblies, the synagogues that God intended it to be were to be run and headed by his prophets and his priests who will speak on his behalf and lead the people. Like what Moses did. But sadly, like in the case of Aaron, is the congregations who are putting the pressure on the leadership that, eh, let's tweak it a little bit. Does Jesus really have to be the Messiah, be everything? Can we become a little bit more inclusive? Can we do this thing? Aaron wanted to save his job as a priest. If Aaron had not made the cough for them, somebody else would have made They would have told him, okay, Moses is gone, you better also go, we'll find somebody else. That is becoming the sad story of today's churches around the world. I just spoke to 35 group of 35 pastors in India. I was saddened to hear how far they had drifted from the scripture just so that they can have people in the church. No questions asked. Doesn't mean matter what you want to believe as long as you show up so we can count your head and give some money so our budget is intact. And most importantly, my job is secure as a pastor so that you don't replace me. I'll be willing to do anything for you. This passage, if nothing else, reminds us that how important was Peter's confession, which was to serve generations to come. Both as individuals, group of believers who confess the Lord Jesus Christ, and upon that, Jesus builds his community, but at the same time, an assembly of people who recognize it is Jesus' church. He's the one who's building it. And again, the Greek phrase that we said, see, read there, it says, and the gates of hell will not be able to overpower it. That phrase is not for that the gates of hell will overpower the church. No, it's the other way around. In fact, the right translation should be that the gates of hell will not be able to stop the spread of the kingdom of God, or they will not be able to hold people inside hell, so the gospel will reach out. That's what the phrase should be, mean, should be meant. That we as people of God, as we save people of the Lord, we can reach all the way where people seem that they are trapped in hell and those gates will not be able to hold them. We'll be able to save them. Someone this morning made a statement. He says, the way the world is headed, 
Isn't it wonderful when John said, Lord Jesus, come quickly? I said, yes, it is wonderful. But it's the same Peter who reminded us later on in his letter that the only reason Jesus coming is delayed so that we can reach out to some more people. So some more can be become part of the fold. Otherwise, God probably sitting in heaven looking at us like he said in the days of Noah, like he said in the days of Aaron, I am done with these people. I had it with them. But on account of somebody or the other who's pleading before the Lord, Lord, please give us your grace. Please allow us another day so that we can reach out to some more. And that is the purpose of the church here. That's the purpose of the church around the world. To proclaim what Peter proclaimed, that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the son of living God. He's the Lord. He's not dead and buried somewhere. Many may claim to be Messiah, but there's only one, Jesus Christ, who's the living son of the living God. That's our celebration this morning. That's also our great commission in the neighborhood and around the world. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for another reminder from your word that how much time and effort you took to put your word into writing. You've given it to us. So there's no confusion. There's no issue as to what you said. But unfortunately, we are bringing it upon ourselves with our fancy interpretations, fancy distraction. That's Satan's way to somehow take us away from the Lord Jesus Christ to somehow take us away from God. Whether we get help from science, whether we get help from philosophy, whether we get help from all the different who have come and gone. But help us, Father, to maintain our confession. Jesus Christ is the Son of God, Son of living God. The only one who died for our sins, the only one who goes again to bring us back to God. The only one who's coming back again. And the only one with whom we're going to spend our eternity. That we'll proclaim this message unapologetically. Don't have to be ashamed of. Because it's your word. We just happen to believe in it. I pray for this church. That you use them as salt and light. To this neighborhood and to the ends of the earth. To proclaim what Peter proclaimed. Yes, Jesus. You are the Messiah. In fact, you're the only Messiah for this world. Yes, you truly are the son of the living God. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us stand.